can I please ask you a question? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to continue to try and live a godly life? Is it worth it to try and keep living the way God wants you to live? Now, before you get to the immediate easy answer of, of course, yes. What a ridiculous question, or what an outrageous question, if this is what's coming to your mind. Just hold your answer a little bit, and please don't think ill of me because it's not my question. It's Asaph's question. Asaph is the guy who, inspired by God, wrote his own personal experience in Psalm 73. It's a psalm where he observes the way life is around him, and that plunges him into crisis to a point where he asks, is it worth it? Um, Asaph is not as famous as David, but he's not completely obscure either. We know quite a bit about him from the Old Testament. Um, He was a musician. David, so he lived around the time of David and Solomon. He overlapped both of them. David appointed him as the head chief leader of worship, and uh, at the time of the inauguration of the temple that Solomon built, he was one of the leading worship leaders as well. Uh, He wrote a number of psalms, so he wrote 12 of them, Um, and one of them is the one we're looking at today. Asaph talks about his personal crisis. Is it worth it? Um, Like a very good storyteller, in the first three verses, he gives us a bit of a summary that is enough to make us want to know more, but not enough to give us the whole story. So in the first three verses, he starts by saying, God is good. We know that. But I almost slipped. I almost lost my footing. I almost lost my way. Because I envied the wicked and the arrogant. Now, if I read these three verses, I would definitely want to know the rest of the story. So how about if we pray, and then we'll get into the rest of the story. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word, your true word, speaks the truth into our lives. I pray that your word shapes and resets our realities to match your truth. I pray that you encourage us to continue to live for you and with you, even though we're living in a world that doesn't know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, It would be a good thing if you keep your Bibles open, because we are actually going to go through the uh, psalm almost almost verse by verse. Um, So after he introduces what he's going to say, He goes on to explain who the wicked and the arrogant are, just in case his reader thinks, you know, that he's having a moment and it's really not an issue. He spends about a third of the psalm describing the wickedness and the arrogance um, of the people he's talking about. So please go with me to verse 4. The people he's talking about that he's envious of, 
are they have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they're physically healthy and strong nothing necessarily wrong with this on its own um, and as we go through his descriptions we'll notice that the tone of what he's talking about will get stronger the seriousness of the evil and the wickedness will get stronger verse 5 they don't have the same common worries that normal people have um, i'm guessing the the worries that people back then would have are the similar to the worries that people nowadays would have what happens if i lose my job what happens if i get sick what happens if i uh, can't look after my family well what happens if the kids are playing up and not f- following the 10 commandments him living in the old testament um, but these people that he's talking about don't have these worries don't have these anxieties for some reason they live a life that is carefree verse 6 they wear their pride as a necklace interesting figure of speech they are almost not just proud not just arrogant they are proud of being proud they are having their pride on display we are invincible look at us we don't care we do these things that we want without a worry in the world and we're happy we're not a, we're not ashamed of it we don't hide it it's there for everyone to see they are violent they overpower others to get what they want they use force to achieve their goals verse 7 we start to get a little bit deeper because it's now a matter of the heart their callous hearts are the source of the evil it's coming from within their hearts are callous hardened insensitive flowing with wickedness and evil there's no limitations to the evil stuff that they imagine and want to achieve i am not going to spend too much time thinking what they're imagining i will leave this to your imagination but even the stuff that they think of it's not even a reality yet is full of evil and wickedness verse 8 they scoff they ridicule they make fun they lie full of ill intent they will say anything to get what they want they deceive and they're proud of it verse 9 they think they own everything um nothing is beyond the reach heaven and earth they lay claim to everything nothing is beyond them verse 10 they are popular they have a following they are like celebrities um people not just approve of them people think of them as role models they become a model to imitate people think oh what a great way to live let's do the same but despite the deep wicked wickedness that asaph is describing i think it's verse 11 that really gets him all this wickedness is one thing and verse 11 it really hurts it's like the icing on the cake when it comes to wickedness blatant public unashamed 
ridicule of God himself. How would God know? Does he even know anything at all? It's not a real question. They're making fun of God. Why? What's the thought process behind them making fun of God? These are people living in the Old Testament times within the people of Israel. They know the commandments. And their thought process is, God doesn't know anything because if he did, wouldn't, wouldn't we be not successful? But we are. If his ways were right and correct, wouldn't we be not prosperous? But we are. If his commandments were true, wouldn't we be anxious and not carefree? But we are carefree. Therefore, God doesn't know anything. The way he tells us to live is not right. And Asaph looks at this. He knows, at least in his mind at this point, he knows that God is good. This is what he said in the first sentence. He knows God is good. But at the same time, he looks around him, and what he observes, the evidence, is saying that wickedness goes unchecked. No punishment, no judgment. What does this say about God in Asaph's mind? Isn't God supposed to be holy? Isn't God supposed to be just? Isn't God supposed to come to the aid of the weak and the oppressed? Why is he not doing anything? What he's observing is pulling him away from what he knows about God. What he's observing is not aligned with what he knows of God. And that plunges him into crisis. And his crisis is, he words it really well in verse 13. This is the question of of the psalm. This is the problem. This is the issue. Surely, in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain. Pointless. Nothing achieved. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. He looks at the world around him. He looks at the wickedness of the wicked. And he's no longer standing on solid ground. He's starting to wonder whether it's worthwhile living a godly life. What's the point in keeping my heart pure if the people with callous hearts are prospering and living a great life? What's the point in keeping my hands clean from guilt if people who have guilty hands guilty tongues and guilty minds are having the best time ever. Now, sometimes I wonder if Asaph has really written these things thousands of years ago or last week because this sounds very, very familiar. 
As Christians, we go through life and we look at people and they seem to be living in every way they want and nothing happens. Have you ever come across um, a business owner who takes advantage of his employees for his own financial gain without any regard to their well-being and their business succeeds? While you as a Christian, you try and run your business in a godly way, and it keeps struggling. Have you ever come across someone who fudges their tax return every year and get away with it? While you try and be honest, and you're at a financial disadvantage. Have you ever come across spouses who cheat in and out of Marriage with no consequences, while you as a Christian is trying very hard to be faithful, not only in action, but in thought, in your heart. Have you ever tried to explain to someone why you trust in Jesus, only to be ridiculed and told that if Jesus is as powerful as he says, and loving as he says, and all the stuff that you Christians say about Jesus the world would look very different? Does this sound like the question the arrogant and the wicked are asking? What, what does God know? If God was true, if his word is true, the world would look different. Have you ever thought to yourself, is it worth it? Do you ever get tired and think, is it worthwhile loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy, Forgiving seven times, 70 times, every day. And for what? Because people who are not living in this way are not having any problems. There's no consequences. SF was plunged into crisis. Having noticed such terrible wickedness and evil seems to go unpunished. And he asks the question, is it worth it? Have I done all this in vain? And the more he keeps thinking about it, have a look at verse 14. It's almost, he's saying, I'm the one being punished. I'm the one trying to live a godly life. It's in vain. And I'm the one being afflicted and punished. And the more I think about it, verse 16, the more I try to understand, the more troubled I become. This is not an uncommon experience for Christians. We don't talk about these things at church a lot. We don't talk about these things in conversations a lot. But it is a part of the Christian experience. We live in a world that is very loud and very noisy and very overwhelming. And sometimes it feels like this is too much. But then the most important thing in this psalm happens. Have a look at verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, if I was given five minutes to talk about this psalm, I would talk about this verse. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. The minute he enters God's presence, something changes. Something new begins. 
the way he thinks change. Have a look at verses um, 16 and 17 together. Verse 16 is before he goes into the sanctuary. He enters the sanctuary of God. I try to understand all this and all what he gets is he's troubled more. Verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I... What happened? I understood the elusive understanding that he couldn't find before entering God's sanctuary, before being in God's presence starts to happen. In God's presence, Asaph was able to connect the dots. You know the kids... Um, activity where they connect the dots for an image and only when they connect enough or all of the dots they can see the cat or the house or the car this is what's happening he's connecting the dots in God's presence his view of reality changes in God's presence his understanding of what's going on around him changes People's behavior doesn't change. What people do and say doesn't change. But Asaph gains God's perspective. This is the difference. This is what verse 17 is about. God's perspective. It's like he's put on God's truth glasses and now he can see all the other dots that he couldn't see. So how about if we have a look at some of the dots that he sees from that point onwards. The first dot he sees is the fact that he was looking at a snapshot, at a still picture, and instead of watching the whole video to the end. So he, before entering God's presence, he was looking at the wicked people, looking at their present life, forgetting, missing the fact that they have a future. And their future does not look any, uh, doesn't look as nice as their presence at all. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what the future of the wicked people looks like, but I would like to point two things. One, verse 18, they are on slippery ground. Can you notice the language? He started by saying, I was almost slipping. He goes into God's presence and he sees who is really slipping and it's the wicked, not him. They are slipping. They are going down a really bad path. The second point about the the future of the wicked that he notices is that everything that they're doing and saying is temporary, insignificant. It's going to disappear. He uses a really good analogy. You know when you're having a nightmare or a bad dream, and while you're having the nightmare, it feels very real, and then you wake up? How long does it take for you to realize it's a nightmare, it's not real? Three seconds max, and then all of a sudden it's gone. This is a new realization that he has. These guys, even though they look happy, They look prosperous. When God arises, when God 
enacts his justice, they're going to be as insignificant as a bad dream when you wake up. They're gone. They disappear. So they're not as significant. So when you're looking at the world around you and you think, people who are not living a godly life are getting away with it, and this is not fair. This is only now. All this will disappear. All this will evaporate. Let's move to the next point that he connects so he gets to the full image. The next point is about his IQ. He realizes something about himself. Have a look at um, verse 21. When my heart was grieved, when I was upset, when when I was full of bitterness against the wicked people, I was senseless. I wasn't thinking straight. I wasn't very smart. I was ignorant. I was as if I never knew God before at all. He goes as far as saying, I was a brute beast before you. So I was as smart as the cows in the field. That's how much IQ I had. When I was thinking these things, he realized that the problem was never in God's character. He realized that the problem was in his thinking. And this is a very significant thing that happens when people are in God's presence a lot. Our reality, our understanding of the reality will be shaped by something. Something will shape us. Something will shape our views. Something will shape what we think is important. Something will shape our decisions of what to do and what not to do. In God's presence, it is God's truth that shapes our thinking. As I've said earlier, it's like we put on God's truth glasses and we see God's truth. And then the problem that Asaph was having, and I'm pretty sure many of us would have at some point in our Christian walk where this is what we know about God, but the reality of what we see is pulling us away. This problem is solved because what we see will be understood in light of God's truth. And then they are aligned. Only then there's no tension between the two. The last dot that he connects, and it brings the picture all complete, all together. From verse 23 onwards. Yet I'm always with you, with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. You counsel me. Strong language of relationship. This is what it's about. It's about a relationship, a personal relationship between Asaph and God. It's almost God is holding him by his hand. It's very personal. 
It's God who shapes his thinking. It's God who gives him a sense of security and knowing where he is in life and what to make of the reality around him. It's about a relationship. This is probably his biggest dot, his biggest realization. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And and earth has nothing I desire besides you. He has come a long way, hasn't he? From when he was envious of people who have health and wealth and um, carefree lifestyle. He doesn't want any more of that. What he wants is God himself. It is the relationship. This is his biggest bit of realization when he goes into God's when he gets into God's presence. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Really, Asaph, now you don't you're not worrying about your physical health and your mental health? Weren't you earlier thinking these are these guys are healthy and strong and happy? Yes. But now I'm in God's presence and I understand what's more important. It doesn't matter if my health fails. Because I will find strength in you. He uses, he uses a great Old Testament expression. Um, my portion. God is my portion forever. This is an Old Testament expression that is used to say that I choose God over everyone and everything else. Nothing competes with God. Even if I get nothing else, I'm satisfied. He is my portion. And then he, um, he finishes by doing something really, really great. He redefines what's good. He started Psalm by saying, yeah, God is good to his people. But now in verse 27, sorry, 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. God is no longer a distant entity who gives out blessings for the people who follow instructions and hands out punishment to people who don't. God himself is the reward. It's good to be near God. Whether he gives me anything or not doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. God himself is the reward. Um, Asaph realizes that the wicked are temporary. He realizes that in God's presence, his thinking changes. But above all, he realizes that it's about a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And isn't it a great, isn't it great news? Isn't it a great thing to realize that we sit here today on this side of the cross and we know for sure that God's presence is available for anyone and everyone who trusts Jesus. When Jesus was once asked, uh, where do people, 
where is the right place for people to worship, here or there? This is a very short summary of a much longer story, but he was asked, Do people, is it better for people to worship here or over there? And Jesus said, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Probably in Asaph's mind in the Old Testament, when he said, I'm going into the sanctuary, he probably had to go into a physical place, the tabernacle or the temple or something like that. doesn't matter. He ended up meeting God. But we don't have to do that. God's presence is open and available to anyone and everyone who trusts Jesus. Um, some Bible passages are hard to get from, especially the Old Testament. It's hard to get from where the passage is to where our lives here and now are. Not Psalm 73, though. It's, it's very straightforward. Psalm 73 is basically saying this to us. When you, in your Christian walk, feel overwhelmed by the intense worldly attitudes that surround you, go into God's presence and pray. When, when what you believe to be true about God starts to feel a little bit shaky, not as solid as it used to be, Go into God's presence. Study his word seriously. Let him reshape and reset your reality so you see things from his view. When big questions arise, like today's question, is it worth it? Don't just try and sweep the question aside and hope that it will disappear somehow. Take it into God's presence. Talk to God about him. Ask him. And remember this, it is not about the things that God will give us. It's not about people, it's not about who's the richest man. That's not, I did not, Elon Musk. Um, It's not about how much money, even if you're the richest person. It's not about that. Being near to God is the true reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that what we are being offered is amazing. We are being invited and encouraged into knowing you personally, into having a relationship where we can talk to you freely and listen to you freely. Heavenly Father, encourage us by your spirit to take advantage of this, to really live it not just understand it and think about it. Bring us often and a lot into your presence. Give us to immerse our thoughts in your word so they are shaped and colored and carved by your truth. Give us to pray, to talk to you honestly about the difficulties that we go through so we might experience your encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.